Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. I'm not Denny Kahn, but I am Drew Beecham, and together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing, coming June 2019, to a retailer near you. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas, and Denny is known for questioning conventional wisdom and testing it out. On today's episode, it's finally happened. After nearly four winters of podcast producing, both Denny and I have been felled by simultaneous bouts of the Peruvian guinea pig death flu. It's a devious disease and not nearly as cute as it sounds. While I may sound rough, trust me when I say Denny sounds worse. So today, to give you a break from our flimmy sounds, we're going to revisit three segments from the past, based on things people are still talking about today. Sit back and get ready for the Wayback Machine, as we talk crushed grain, an experiment with an electric brewing all-star, and yeast genetics with Brian. Don't worry, we're soldiering on, and we'll be back with what should be a really great episode 86. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages. Remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so they know their money is well spent. Now, a couple of announcements before we get started. Don't forget, there was a brand new Brew Files episode released last week, episode 54. So where there's smoke, there's beer, where I sat down and talked with Devin Randall at Imperial Western Beer Company about making smoke beer. And I've been seeing a lot of great feedback online from people talking about the smoke beers that they want to make. So go out there. Get smoky, people. And don't forget that coming March 22nd and March 23rd, you have the chance to hang out with Denny, myself, and Marshall Shot of Brewlosophy in Asheville at the BYO Boot Camp. They're in beautiful, beautiful, beery Asheville. You can join us for a full-day session where we're going to talk about the things we've learned brewing, how we design experiments, how you can design experiments, and how you can use beer science to make better beer. And if you go to BYOBootCamp.com and use the offer code BYOBootCamp Experimental Brewing, can actually get a full $100 off, still $75 off until February 22nd, plus $25 off for saying you're an Experimental Brewing listener. 
Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHABrewSwag.com code word experimental, Amazon Brewer's Friend or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is, well, we're announcing it next episode, but I think we've got a good one. And now, of course, it's time to get on with the show. In our very first segment that we're revisiting, Denny and I sit down and talk about the results of one of my favorite experiments, and one of the things that we see asked about all the time can you use pre-crushed grain that's been sitting around for a month or more? So sit back and find out if our tasters can detect the difference between beer made with fresh grain or with pre-crushed grain as we go back to episode 22 in August of 2016. Well, we've uh, wandered over here to the lab. We're sitting here with the uh, Bunsen burners and Jacob's ladders going, and uh, we are going to talk about our malt staling experiment results. Uh, Drew, why don't you run down what the experiment was and uh, how it came out? All right, yeah, sure. So, basic homebrewing uh, logic 101. We always tell people, you know, there are a good number of people out there who don't have a mill at home. So, they buy their grains at their local homebrew shop, and then they crush them there at the local homebrew shop, and they go home. They have everything uh, stored away in a nice brown paper bag, uh, intending to brew that week, and then life happens. Now, take a pick. Something, something's happened. Your kitten decided to have kittens. Your children decided to have children. Uh, life got in the way. Your car broke down. Uh, meteor fell in your house. Whatever. Life happens, and you that don't. Happens, I, that happens to me all the time, man, when a meteor falls on my house and I can't brew. I just hate it. I know. Hopefully one of these days, the scientists will figure out a meteor defense system for us. But in the, <laughs> meanwhile, right. in the meanwhile, until Elon Musk invents your own portable missile battery, you'll have to deal. Now, so homebrew logic has always told you that, hey, you know, you got to have those grains while they're nice and fresh. You know, be able to, you know, be able to make sure that, you know, your grains are freshly crushed. Otherwise, you're going to get off flavors and everything will be bad. And then the question always comes, because homebrewers are homebrewers and hate spending a dime on something that they're not actually getting value out of, okay, so how long can I leave my crushed grains crushed before they're no longer any good? So we proposed an experiment uh, to have our Igors uh, go ahead, grab some malt from the exact same bin, put together a very simple version of a recipe uh, that we gave them, and have one version of the malt crushed and stored in a paper bag, a full month, so 30 days, before brewing. And then they brew, and then uh, immediately crush fresh malt and redo the, uh, the brew so that they could have, you know, a fresh grain, fresh crushed grain versus a unfresh grain uh, comparison. So, Denny, you want to run down uh, the result that we got? Yeah, the, the result was interesting in some ways and not so interesting in others <laughs> how's that for uh, waffling so no. for the first time we had only one igor performing the experiment and that's not necessarily a terrible thing there are lots of uh, experimenters who use only one person at a time but for us this is this is something new uh kelly uh actually came up with uh nine tasters uh for his experiment 
and five of them were able to successfully identify the beer made with the aged grains. Now, that's like 56% and uh, definitely like way over our uh, our p-value of uh, 0.05 that we usually take uh, to, uh, to mean that uh, the uh, hypothesis is confirmed. So, um, you know, basically people were able to identify that the aged grains beer were different. In general, they found it was sweeter and maltier. Um, and I can't really account for why that would be. Can you? Um, yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, that a good number of tasters out there associate, uh, some minor oxidation flavors with yeah. malt. Oh, that makes sense because when a beer gets oxidized, it gets maltier tasting. You know, that yeah, it gets that a little bit of caramel. Yeah, a little bit of that sweeter thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I I guess that could make sense. And I should I'll just throw out my my own data point here. And while I did not do a comparison, uh, there was a time years back when I had grains crushed for a German pilsner. Uh, I'm pretty much just straight ahead, uh, best pills malt. I might have had a pound of Munich in it. I don't recall. Uh, I always keep my grains in a paper bag after I crush them, but I usually use them within a few days. This time I had a relatively serious uh, medical issue come up and I wasn't able to brew with these grains for five months. Uh, pretty much all I did was, uh, stick the paper bag inside of a large plastic bag and keep it in a dark closet with a relatively stable, cool temperature. And five months later, when I brewed with it, although I didn't have a control to, uh, to test it against, uh, to my, to my tastes, the German pills, uh, turned out the same as it would have pretty much as if I had uh, used these grains originally. Now, maybe if I had had uh, some fresh crushed grains to compare it against, I would have noticed a difference in maltiness. Uh, bottom line is that storing these crushed grains for five months did not produce an undrinkable beer or a bad beer by any means. So there you go. There's my single data point to add. Well, and I know that we have some uh, some breweries around us and other people who do use pre-crushed grains, for instance, and who knows how long those pre-crushed grains were crushed before they actually get to the brewery. That's right. Um, but now, I mean, with Kelly's results, it, a lot of people, when we first proposed this experiment, were worried about, okay, well, how's weather going to impact this? Well, uh, Kelly kept all the grains in a climate-controlled basement, so uh, in theory, a relatively low-humidity environment. Now, looking forward, I mean, I obviously would love to repeat this experiment because uh, I like more results, being me, and I can see a couple different variations of things that we can do. This recipe that we used here was a uh, just a plain-Jane, straightforward wheat beer. If it's like my, my basic, no-nonsense wheat beer recipe... 50% Pilsner, 50% wheat malt, uh, single hop edition, right? You know, And the reason that we went that way was because we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to possibly end up with any influence from a dark malt. Uh, because some people out there uh, propose that roasted grains uh, have an antioxidant effect. So, Yep, that's correct. So, I mean, uh, it's correct that they say that. I, I, that I won't go right. any further. Uh, so we, we, we wanted to purposely avoid that. So we went with the palest thing possible. Wheat obviously also seems to be uh, a notorious thing that people say goes stale or gets fatty and rancid. 
So that was, the idea was just to give it a little bit of an extra boost if we could see it. And obviously, this was right on the line, but not but not over the line so that we could say that, yes, there was an apparent difference. Kelly did the right thing. Beers were tasted in opaque cups and did note that uh, that the aged version was a little bit darker. Uh, but really what I want to see is I would love to see this experiment replicated to with more uh, more people doing the experiment. Uh, and also get a better sense of does humidity play an effect? Does it, does weather and location play effect? Because for instance, I'm fairly certain, uh, Denny, you know, I mean, you just talked about doing this with grains that were five months old and you live in cool climate, but a moist climate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as a matter of fact, just to, uh, take it to the extremes this was actually during the winter months so it was uh, as wet as it's going to get around here right um, but the uh, the cold also in theory would stave off some oxidative responses now uh, yeah now for instance for me i live in southern california where you know we're lucky if we have more than two molecules of water in the air and you know it's hot so that's a different a different profile and yet I could see me getting away with grains stored away for a good long period of time because of the lack of humidity. Now we turn around and we go to say my home state of Florida, where it is both hot and, you know, basically the water, uh, the water has some air in it. As I like to say, uh, yeah, I could see those grains not being able to last. So, you know, and it, and it may come down to, how you store also, because I mean, we all know that, you know, when you store malt, you want to store it as dry as possible. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe an interesting experiment would be to use pre-cut crushed malt, uh, and uh, take one batch that was stored as well as could be done and another batch that was stored haphazardly and see how that affects things. Yeah. Put things in, in vacuum bags versus brown paper bags that we get from the, the homebrew store. I mean, there are, yeah. there are a number of variations uh, that we that we need to take on this. I think in order to get a better, more complete profile. Now, I will say, I think part of the reason why we only had one experiment on this was not only the lead time necessary to do this uh, uh, this particular experiment was also the fact that we have, I think, some fears with something like this where that could potentially produce bad beer. That we get some people who just want to back away from the experiment because, after all. Who wants to produce one to five gallons of bad beer intentionally? So, oh, I'm used to it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> um, so, one of the things I think that we need to do uh, as research coordinators and researchers is start to put together uh, a way to rescue your beers. Right? I have a whole article that I've written in the past about this, and it's in uh, one of the books about how to rescue your beer so that if your beer does go bad, that you still have a way to have drinkable beer at the end of the day. And maybe that will help encourage some more experimentation. We need to put together a series of uh, beer nine one one things, huh? Yep, absolutely. Before we uh, before we get out of the segment, I just kind of want to finish up with uh, Kelly's overall observations, where he said uh, the beers appear different with the uh, aged uh, grains being a little bit darker, but tasted very similar. The color difference could even be attributed to the boil. From my observation, crushing grains thirty days prior to brewing does not have a negative impact on the flavor. So there you go. For those of you who are afraid to try it because you would make bad beer, look, you make different beer, but it's not bad. So, uh, 
you know, take, take a chance, try it out, uh, learn something, share your knowledge with everybody. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. And in our next segment of the show, we actually got a chance to sit down with Brian Huntley, a.k.a. Short Circuited Brewers on YouTube, when he sent us a couple of beers as an experiment that he decided to do. It's kind of always fun to have the experimental tables turned on us, and we got to do a triangle test, and I'm proud to say I got it right, and Denny got it wrong. That just makes me happy, even though that's a fluke. Set the Wayback Machine to episode 47 from August of 2017, so we jump forward a full year and learn, well, exactly how do hops behave in the whirlpool if they're constrained versus, well, free-roaming. We have made our way over to the lab because it's experiment time, but this time, <laughs> there goes Drew doing his Jacob's Ladder imitation again. This time, it's not our experiment. It's one run by a gentleman by the name of Brian Huntley, who we have on the line. Hey, Brian, how are you today? Doing great. How are you? 
Uh, I'm good because I have three beers sitting here in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad the care package arrived like it was supposed to. I was going to say, we will always appreciate uh, free beer packages arriving. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and especially because it's in the name of science, right? Exactly. Beer science. So, Brian, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do? Yeah, uh, so I have been brewing for about 10 years now, and one of the things that kind of led me to home brewing was we had kind of an impromptu family reunion out in uh, California in your guys' neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. And one of my cousins, he actually brews beer himself. And he brought a bunch of different beers with him and we got a chance to try them all. So from that point, I said, you know what? It's, it's amazing that uh, beer can have this much flavor. So I, I told my wife, I said, uh, let's uh, get a kit for Christmas and I'll try it. So I got a, a kit and it was a holiday ale. And it was an extract batch. And then I moved right from that to a partial mash batch and did one of those. And I thought, well, this is pretty neat, but I like to cook and, uh, you know, take control of the ingredients and everything. So I thought, well, what about all grain? So I went right from extract to partial mash, and then the next batch, the third batch, was all grain. So did that wow. for a few years. <laughs> yeah, I had a interesting vertical there. Um <laughs> Did that for about a year or two, and then uh, came across uh, an electric brewery site. And I thought, well, that's pretty neat. And uh, I like that kind of, you know, I love tinkering with stuff, building computers, all that kind of stuff. So I thought, well, you know what, that, that looks really cool, too, because uh, that would allow me, it gets pretty cold here in Ohio in the wintertime, so I'm like, that would allow me to kind of brew indoors without dealing with so many of the elements and everything. So I set about building one of those, and... Uh, about five years ago, uh, built a three-vessel Hearn system uh, from scratch pretty much all myself, just uh, using what I could figure out online. Uh, well, I would tell you that there was not nearly as much stuff online now, you know, then as there is now, for sure. sure. Uh, a lot more information. And uh, shortly after that, I thought, well, you know, it's pretty fun, and then started, you know, watching some stuff on YouTube that was, it was kind of, brewing was starting to kind of catch hold there a little bit, too, so I started watching some stuff on YouTube. And uh, so, well, you know, let's start a channel. So we did, me and a few other guys did that. And uh, we've been, uh, we, we did it pretty good, pretty heavily there uh, in 2015. And there was a little bit of a hiatus, uh, job changes and stuff like that. And then uh, in uh, December of 2016, I was looking through a uh, Brew Your Own magazine and saw the Blickman Quick Card. And I thought, you know what, I haven't brewed for a while. It's been probably about six or eight months since I had brewed, actually. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> it, it happens. I, I know the feeling, man. <laughs> right, exactly. And I thought, you know what, that, that device looks really, really cool. I think I want to brew a batch, and uh, I'd like, I want to buy, I want to get one of those for Christmas. So my wife got me one of those for Christmas, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I did a review on that and uh, was really, really well received. And uh, we just, this past, uh, about a week ago, we passed uh, 2,000 subscribers on our YouTube wow, channel. that's great. Nice. And uh, things are going really good. I, uh, you know, uh, I've had some manufacturers send me some products for review, and um, got a pretty good relationship with Blickman. I, I was actually the first person outside of uh, the test groups that had a Blickman uh, Riptide pump in the, in those the entire are really United sexy, States. sexy, man. Those, are, those are very cool looking. Oh, man, they're awesome. 
I absolutely love mine. So that's kind of my, my condensed version of, of uh, my story. <laughs> so if people want to find your YouTube channel, uh, what do they look for? Uh, short-circuited Brewers. Okay, great. And, where and, uh, and we'll include a link. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link up on our website. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So, how did how did you come up with a short circuited name? Are you like an electronics tech? No, not really. It was it was one of those things because uh, because I was the first person in our group to build an electric brewery, and it's kind of the story is kind of funny because I met the other two guys off of Craigslist. I was selling my old uh, uh, keg, uh, kegel. I was selling my old kegel on Craigslist. And I uh, met one of the guys and told him what I was doing, and he was really fascinated by it. He's like, oh, hey, well, bring, uh, can I come take a look at it? And I'm like, sure. I, I had a single vessel at that time with a rim system. And uh, I told him, sure, come on over. Of course, to the horror of my wife, he decides to bring a buddy to tag along with him. And <laughs> here, here we are in the garage, two guys off of Craigslist and me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard those and, stories. Uh, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, they're fine. They're pure guys. They'll be all right. <laughs> you know. And, uh, so it was kind of funny and, uh, we, we decided that, you know, because we were, all of us were building electric breweries that, you know, we would, we would kind of come up with something that was centered around electric and, uh, there you somebody go. came up with a name and, you know, said we were short circuited one day and they're like, Hey, that's a good name. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of where it came from. And Ho- hopefully that <laughs> doesn't happen too often, man. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Always have your brewery on a GFI circuit. <laughs> oh, always, really, man. So let's get into uh, some beer tasting here. I have three yeah. glasses here in front of me. One is labeled X, one is labeled G, and one is labeled C, which gives me absolutely no clue about anything. Yeah, I, kind of, I wanted to try to take your guys' advice uh, on the, some of the tri- – I've read a lot of uh, Marshall stuff over at Brewlosophy and, and – and, uh, looked at some of the triangle testing and, and tried to avoid any kind of hint of what was going on as much as possible. So. Right. Well, and I, I was going to say, you threw in the extra complication of mine are labeled E, F, and H. <laughs> yeah, there's no way we can cheat on this, is there? Yeah. So. No, no, not at all. That was the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Yeah, I was going to say, is that something to say to the nice man who sent us beer? Come on, Denny. All right. No, okay, okay. Here we go. I'll take it back. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Here we go. I'm taking. I'm starting with X. Well, and I'm just now pouring my beers because I'm that sort of person. Yeah. Um, nice nose. Well balanced. There's some hops in there. Now, Brian, if I remember correctly, you had done a, a a short video kind of describing some of what, what you're trying to experiment with, right? But we haven't paid any attention. Yeah, actually, it, here's the crazy part. I did a, I did a, a live brew session of the experiment, and I was actually live on YouTube for seven hours that day. <laughs> you're a sick man. Phone, the phone don't fail I know, me now. You talk, about, you talk about dedication. But what was even more sick was that there were people that, that uh, hung out with me the whole time. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I wonder sometimes with the live uh, streaming if that's just not a lot of people going, you know what, I need an excuse to drink beer. Shush! They're doing beer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's kind of cool to do in the live sessions because, you know, you'll get, you'll get people that are brewing or, you know, people that are, do, you know, cleaning, cleaning their brewery or whatever they just brewed and, you know, they'll have you on the, on the big screen or something. And uh, it's just, it's, it's really a blast. We, we really <laughs> enjoy it. Have a lot of fun. Well, you know, at first I thought I could tell for sure which one was the odd beer so to speak now but of course after the second pass through i have no idea well and of course i mean this is the thing okay. is that we we always try and tell people like no matter how good your palate is a triangle test is always going to mess with you 
because you're always going to yeah. second guess yourself. Sure. Mm, mm. And I'm, you know, these are so delicious. I don't really even care anymore. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to make my guess. How about you, Drew? Yep. I think so. Are you? <laughs> He's so busy drinking. Okay. <laughs> I'll go first. I think that for me, the different beer is X. It seems to have more hop aroma to it and a touch more hop flavor. So how about you, right. Drew? And I think for me, I'm going E because I think there's more bitterness. Okay. All right. So why don't you tell us now what the experiment was and how we did? Okay. So the the experiment was uh, I had been reading some information, listening to your guys' podcast, reading some information from Marshall over Berlosby, and something I've always wanted to try was just doing a... Uh, pale ale with just hops in the whirlpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, always was fascinated by that process, and you know, I, I always wondered how much bitterness it extracted from the hops. You know, there, there's so many different variables with doing that that are kind of undocumented. That you know, we really have no idea what goes on in there. Right. And um, so, I got a product in from More Beer. To try to to do a review on the uh, tr- the Trump Trapper, it's like a big screen that kind of looks. People call it, it looks like a uh, a car air filter, you know, like from an old ship, uh, fifty seven Chevy or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> man, it's this big. That was big that's before that's Drew's that. time, but I remember him. No, I remember him too. Right. <laughs> exactly. So I I was going to review that, and then I thought, you know what? I'm like, why not do something more fun than just a review? Why not do an experiment? So. What I did was I formulated a, a batch, and what I did was I made a 10-gallon batch, which I usually target about 11 gallons, mm-hmm. and uh, made a pretty simple recipe, uh, 20 pounds of two-row, three pounds of carapils, and one pound of melanoidin malt. Right. And what I did was I ran all that off, fly-sparged into my kettle, um, to my volume, it was about 13 and a half gallons, and then drained off half of that volume, started it up, boiled it for 60, 60 minutes, and then turned the element off at 60 minutes and threw in uh, four ounces each of citra and amarillo. So there were eight ounces of hops that went into the whirlpool. Mm-hmm. And uh, using my, I was using my Blickman Riptide pump, and that thing does a pretty pretty stiff whirlpool. So I did one batch that way with the Trub Trapper throwing the hops directly into the kettle. And I did, after that was done, you know, chilled it down, drained it off in the fermenter. Then I dumped the other batch in, did it again. <laughs> so that was the reason for the seven-hour brew day was oh, <laughs> I did two separate batches of beer back-to-back. Wow. And the only difference between the two of them was the one, the one that had the truck trapper, obviously I threw the hops directly in the kettle on that one. And then the other one, I stuck a hop sack off the side of the kettle and ran the uh, recirculation kind of, you know, if you will, blowing or pumping towards the sack. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much it. Um, I, I did use um, Y-East 1332, which I know you guys, uh, one of your sponsors is Y-East. That's right. Um, I will say that that was an interesting fermentation, uh, both from a length standpoint as well as how the, both the beers looked. It was really weird because the they both had about the same amount of trub in the bottom, mm-hmm. but the fermentation was was completely different color. Uh, the truck trapper was more of a milky looking, almost like one of those, you know, new, uh, dare I say, juicy <laughs> IPA. <laughs> I'm, I'm and, not uh, going there, man. <laughs> uh, 
that was for you. I knew. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I knew that, that was for me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so uh, that fermentation was really cloudy and dark, and the other, the fermentation with the hop sack was very. It was very clear. I mean, there was a lot. You know, there was a lot. Of, there was some truck floating around in there, but. And it stayed that way all the way until about probably 15 or 20 days after pitching the yeast and it, before it finally settled out. So there was, there was a lot of weird things that transpired with, you know, the two diff- the same beer with, with two different processes of just the hops. They used the same yeast on both of them and everything. Hmm. Um, and for the moment of truth with that, yes. uh, here, here is how it goes with the, uh, the samples that I sent you guys. Right. So the hop sack versions were letters C. H and F, okay. and the Trub Trapper, or just throw it right in the kettle, was G, X, and E. So I blew it. And I got it right. You blew it. <laughs> <laughs> now, so. I will tell you that uh, I had I, I got together with some of the uh, folks from our home brew club, and uh, also sent a couple of bottles home with my buddy for him and his wife to try. And I will tell you that I was pretty surprised by the results of it. And uh, seven out of ten of the people that were in the triangle test at uh, at the little meeting that we had mm-hmm. picked the the odd man out. Wow! So, so, so basically, basically, then my taste buds are totally shot. <laughs> it could be <laughs> all two of them. You know, my, my nose. I worked in the automotive industry for a long time around paint and all other chemicals, so my nose is not too good sometimes. <laughs> I have a hard time smelling hops and beer. So did you by but, any chance get the beers analyzed to see if the IBUs in them were similar? I did, as a matter of fact. I did. Dana over at uh, Dana Lab, did. Oh, great. Lab. Sure. She said to tell you guys hi, by the way. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's the real uh, interesting result behind the whole thing. Uh, and she obviously, you know, as, as you would know, she's a pretty, she's a stickler for, for details when it comes to analysis of beer. Oh yeah. And you know, uh, IBU testing is not always the sensory telltale, you know, mm-hmm. it's just sure. the number that can be skewed by tannins and grains and, you know, all those sort of things. So, but here, here's the really weird thing that, that I found interesting was the, the trub trapper or the one that I, that I dumped the hops directly into the kettle mm-hmm. that actually had an IBU of forty-seven point five. Okay, and the hop sack it had a IBU of forty-five point five. So damn close. So there were only what's that? Damn close, man. Yeah. So there's only two IBUs difference, but I, I think as uh, as Drew was saying, you, you know, you picked up more bitterness from the one that was the trub trapper, right? The one that just dumped right into the kettle, Wait, and, and so, that was E, right? Because he was yeah, the one that yeah. I picked out. I want to make sure. E and C, yeah. I'm, now that I know, I'm going back through, and it's like, well, yeah, it's obvious, you idiot. But <laughs> oh no, I went it, back and forth so on weird, this though, because you know, being only only for uh, two IBUs, basically about uh, just roughly two point two IBUs off. There's there's a distinct difference, in my opinion, in the bitterness. Of course, you know, I was I was privy to what was going on right. the entire time, but I definitely found that there was uh, a more rounder bitterness with the the hops that were put in the hop sack, and then there was a much sharper, more apparent bitterness with the ones that were just dumped in the kettle. I agree, and I think that that goes back to uh, something that we've known for a long time, is that uh, IBUs can only tell you so much. That They can tell you the amount of iso-alpha acids in there, but they can't really tell you what those taste like. Exactly. Now, the interesting thing that, uh, according to Beersmith software, 
this thing was supposed to have an IBU of about 78. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if you ever listened to the episode we did about the oh, IBU yeah. is a lie with Glenn Tinseth. So, um, uh-huh. you know, um, it, it's not surprising to me that the analyzed IBUs are not anywhere near the predicted IBUs because it's so dependent on kettle geometry and how you chill, especially. Yeah. Uh, so, yep, exactly. Well, but but and that was the interesting thing too for me was I felt pretty confident in what I did because I literally, and you can if, if you go out to Instagram, I'm short circuited brewer out there. If you go out to Instagram, you can see some photos in my feed as well as video of this whole process taking place. Right. And the the fermenters were almost exactly. I mean, they were literally exactly the same volume because I boiled at the you know with an electric brewery, I can sure. set it to boil at a certain rate. And, you know, with a timer, it, it, the evaporation was exactly the same. Everything was pretty much exactly the same on it, which, you know, that that's what kind of made me feel confident in performing the experiment and, and having some tangible results where we could, you know, try it out. Right. So that the, definitely the only variable was the way you added those flame-out hops. That is correct, yeah. And it went from 212 degrees boiling, and it dropped in that time period, the 30 minutes that I did a whirlpool for, it dropped down to 178 degrees. Okay. Um, and you put the hops. I, you put the hops in both of them as soon as the boil was finished, right? Yeah, as soon as I flipped okay. off the switch, I dumped in the eight ounces of hops. Wow. Well, this is this has certainly been very interesting because Drew obviously picked out that there was a difference between the beers. I wasn't able to do that as much. Well, uh, I think that just points to the fact that my one extra taste bud gives me a superiority over your two. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or that, or that you got luckier than I did, and uh, when you flipped your coin, it came up the right way. Uh, maybe I should go to Vegas <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> That's right, man. Buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> What's interesting is I on my uh, my sheets, and I'll, I'll have to I'll have to send you guys. Uh, I'll have to scan one and email it to you. Sure. Um, I did some sheets for the the uh, triangle test. And, uh, you know, had them to where they instructed them to taste the beers from left to right and, you know, had a, a blank in there for them to write which samples were the same, which were different, which one they preferred. And then what, and then for them to describe the differences between the samples in, of all the ones that got the, the off beer correct, all of them said that they preferred, the ones that preferred the Trub Trapper said that, uh, they experienced that much, you know, much more sharp bitterness. Mm-hmm. Right. And the ones that preferred the other said it was much more round bitterness, which, you know, I mean, that's exactly what I was experiencing as well. And so it was, it was interesting to see that of the people that got it correct, you know, they, they were able to, to make that distinction between the two of them. Yeah. So it, did you try Well, and I was just going to say, I mean, like for me, as I sit here and I taste these, as they've warmed up even more, the, the difference becomes even more apparent. I think, you know, the ones with the rounder bitterness do feel more almost like the IPAs I would have in the UK when they are on cask or cask versions of IPAs here, right? where they get that sort of a rounder hop character. And the other one is definitely more bitter. And this may come down to one of those preference things where, you know, me being West Coast dude, like I go, Ooh, bitter. I like that. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. But Damn, it's close though, isn't it? I'm sitting here going through all three of these beers, and you know, now that I know, I mean, and again, it, it can just be confirmation bias. I'm not ruling that out, but now that I know, I can find that the the one that you did uh, with the Trobe Trapper is is just a hair more bitter tasting. You know, the the sensory uh-huh. perception is like that. 
But again, you know, confirmation bias is such a pernicious thing. Who can really say? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Drew, I said pernicious just for you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Uh, one of the well, side- you guys don't start saying, start saying first and foremost. That's, that's my buzzword. But I- <laughs> okay, you can have that one. Oh, no, no. We've been. No, we've Den- been Denny, like, uh, Denny stole one of mine the other day uh, in something that we're writing. He stole anathema. That's right. <laughs> we've, been, we've been trying to out big word each other recently. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> I worked for a guy one time, and I said something weird, and he flipped me a quarter. He's like, that was a 25-cent worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, Drew, any other questions for Brian? So when people come to uh, go find your YouTube station, uh, how how often are you posting? What other things do you post other than live brew days and, and product reviews? And are there other things oh you're doing? Oh, my gosh. Um, I do, you know, the product reviews, of course. And then uh, I've also been doing, like, I've, I've kind of taken on this mission. I, I, I've looked out. And in the YouTube space, and even online for that matter, there's not a lot of information about electric brewing. I mean, you know, and I have to say, you know, what gave me the information was the electricbrewery.com. Mm-hmm. Cal Walner's, you know, he's like the, the godfather of electric brewing. So, you know, my hat's off to him for even, you know, getting me interested in it. But there's not a lot of information in it out there that, you know, is straightforward and concise and, and tells people, you know, here's what it is and here's how it works and here's how you build a system. There's a lot of videos of, you know, people showing what they did or right. whatever, but kind of took it upon myself to, you know. Now here's my completed product. Yeah, exactly. So I've kind of taken it on myself to actually do a lot of videos instructing people on how to do that sort of thing. So, you know, because it is a, we are, you know, we do a lot of electric brewing stuff. I, I'm, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, electric brewing evangelist, I call myself sometimes, you know, but, uh, so that, that's the other thing that I, you know, like to do is, is focus on, you know, trying to teach people and, and add some biggest thing. I like to add some value. If somebody's going to come watch, you know, what I do, I like, I like for them to leave with, with some knowledge or, you know, and, and it's funny, a lot of times you don't know what people don't know and, until they don't know it, you know? Indeed. So, well, and so that, that's kind of what I've been doing in, in, in that vein right now. Actually, I've uh, gotten an entire kit from an electric brewing supply, and I'm, I'm doing a complete series on actually building that kit right now. So uh, that's always and, kind of and filming nice. all, so that, all that stuff. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a I, I'm a, a beer junkie, and I also like you know doing videography and stuff like that. So it kind of it, it well, good. And it so, people, so people should be able to time and I really enjoy doing it. So. Well, great. And so people should be able to find that is what they could expect to find over there. A wealth of a lot of information. You know, I hope, you know, the, from the comments that I, that I get, I feel confident in saying that it's, it's good information. So, well, good. And so now if, uh, people, what do they find new videos from you weekly on your channel or. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't answer that question. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I like to put out a video like at least every Sunday on, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, the big topic. And then uh, Wednesdays, I may do some, you know, updates on what's going on with different experiments or different uh, things that are going on. Uh, and then the control panel build that I just currently started working on, that is going to be every Monday. So everybody can sit in their cubicle on Monday and watch YouTube instead of work. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. That sounds great to me. Uh, yeah, I like that idea. Um, yeah. So it- well, so now, Brian... Um- I just, I really have to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your beers with us. And also thank you for giving me an opportunity to prove that I'm a better taster than Denny. And I'll take that every day. <laughs> or or at, no least a, there. No problem at, all. at least a luckier taster than Denny. 
you say luck ice right, skill. right exactly and that's oh incidentally too I, I wanted to say that uh, i did sign up for your igor program so oh great i don't know man. if you found that or not but uh i did sign up for it and i have definitely look forward to doing some more experiments with you guys i think i, you know, I really enjoy I, I have to drive from time to time and i really enjoy listening to the podcast while i'm driving and you know i'm i'm always i'm constantly laughing or going hmm that's interesting (laughs) 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 laughing laughing is a good thing man and thanks thanks for signing up to be an igor things have been a little slow this summer but i guarantee you that they're going to pick up again uh, as soon as we get to the end of the month here so stand by for future experiments We've been talking to Brian Huntley, one of the short circuit brewers, about uh, the experiment that he did with putting flame out hops in. Drew got lucky. I didn't. What can I say? Thanks for joining us, Brian. It was great, man. Uh, keep experimenting and keep in touch. Absolutely. I will do that. And you guys have a great day. You too, man. Bye bye. Woo. All right, bye. Okay. Well, there you go. Like I said, Drew got lucky. I didn't. Uh, the beers were very close, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, apparently Brian's results um, agreed with Drew, huh? Yeah, well, uh, I, I don't know if Brian's results agreed. Well, no, you're right. I'm sorry. Let me take it back. Brian's results proved that Drew is correct. <laughs> Brian's results proved that Drew got lucky for a change. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I'll say, like, as my own personal reaction, like, going through and tasting these, triangle tests are always hard. And it's always intimidating when it, three glasses, because you think about it, it, this should be easy. I taste three glasses. I decide which one's different. Ta-da! You, you're, you're faced with those three glasses and you think, shoot, which one am I? <laughs> no, that one. Wait, that one. No, that one. Da! This time, I just happened to, to get to that ag point at the right glass. Yeah, well, you know what? And there are people who are like going to the quadrangle test, and I think that we may do that, too. I'd at least like to try that. To see if it makes it any more easy to pick out uh, the differences, right? The the quadrangle being you have two and two, and then you have to pick the beers that match, right? Yeah, and there are a couple of different pl- things that we're going to play with. But uh, again, I, I I think any of these blind tasting tests that you do are intimidating. They're they're really darn difficult. You know, people who haven't done it um, have no idea. I mean, that, you think it's going to be easy. You think that your mind is made up. You know what you expect. And then you try it, and it's like, I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah, well, and so I would highly suggest for people who have never done a triangle test before, go just do the simple one that I like to do with people sometimes just to prove how it works. Uh, go grab some Bud Light and go grab some Budweiser and pour two glasses one and one glass the other one and try and pick them out. And you'll be surprised. Yeah. It's hard. And, and it's harder than, yeah, it, it is harder than you would think. You would think it would be obvious. It isn't. Yeah. But now also on this one, I thought to me, I think the interesting part was my presumption would have been that the kettle with the free floating hops, the one with the trub trapper would come off as right. more bitter. And the one with the hops in the bag would come off as more, you know, uh, you know, like it wouldn't be as pronounced. Right. And what we see instead is that the one with the Trub Trapper, we got more pronounced hop character in terms of overall hop character, but a lesser perceived bitterness. And the one with the bag, more perceived bitterness, but also at the same time, lower IBUs. What that makes me wonder is, with the hops free-floating in the kettle, if we're not getting more you know, dissolving of other compounds that are affecting our taste buds, and those may be interfering with our perception of bitterness. And the, the hops that are in the bag 
they're yielding a lower IBU, but there's less compounds getting dissolved into the beer. So therefore, the bitterness is the main component that remains. Yeah, you know, and uh, uh, there has been, since I started brewing 20 years ago, a rule of thumb that you get about 10% less utilization of hops using a bag. So whenever I use a bag, I just simply add 10% more hops. And it would be interesting to try that and see uh, if the results change. Mm, sounds like an experiment, but it's also interesting. I mean, what, it was two IBUs difference? Yeah, and right. I mean, 5%? You can't taste, yeah, you can't, well, you can't taste two IBUs. I've always no. uh, read that the, the threshold is three, and I think that even that is uh, pre- pretty low. Anyway, it's an interesting experiment. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you for doing experiments, and we want to encourage all of you to uh, go ahead and do your own experiments and send us the results. Yeah, and if you want to jump into a segment like that, please. Uh, we'd love to have beer and talk about experiments with people. But in the meantime, make sure that you go check out Brian at Short Circuited Brewer on YouTube and on Instagram, and you'll be able to see him on Reddit, which is actually where we hooked up to talk about this. That's right. So uh, stick around. We're going to take a quick break here to refill our beer glasses, and we'll be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. And in our last segment, we're going back to January 2018, one year ago, when I sat down with Brian Height of Sui Generis, talking about well, what we know about yeast, you know, particularly these days with all the genetic stuff that's coming through. And you know, we thought genes would help simplify the picture, and it turns out it's turned a lot of the things that we know on its head. Now there's all sorts of new stuff that we don't know, including new yeast that do lactic acid. So again, sit back, let's revisit and... I love this segment because, wow, there's a lot of knowledge in here. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. 
We're sitting here in the lounge, and we're going to be listening to an interview that uh, Drew did the other day with Brian Height from Sui Generis Brewing, uh, which is a, a blog that he put together. Brian is a doctor of microbiology and a professor and had some insight into my question about are lager yeasts really ale yeasts? Huh. Yeah, it, it turns out he's kind of a smart dude. And we sat down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we sat down and we actually, we not only covered the whole story about what the heck is going on with yeast classification and just what the heck is an ale yeast and what the heck is a lager yeast and what classes do they belong to and all that sort of fun stuff. But we also dug into some really cool information that he's doing about wild yeast captures, other things that he's been doing on his blog for a while. And I think we, yeah, we even covered the the whole thing about that new yeast strain that's producing clean lactic acid. So and it turns out he has a close connection to that. So I thought overall this was a great talk, a lot of really good information, and I think you're just going to dig it. All right, let's hear Drew and Brian talking yeast. Okay, everybody, it's the lounge. You know what we do here. We talk to people. And if you remember in the last episode, well, we had that whole thing where Denny went, hey, wait a second. Why is some lager yeast marked as Saccharomyces cerevisiae? That's not lager. And we put it out there for questions and answers and hopefully to get a better sense of what the hell is going on than what we can do. And so one of the people that we heard from was uh, Mr. Brian uh, from, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the blog name. Uh, uh, Brian, can you go ahead and introduce everybody to who you are and what your blog is? Uh, I'm Brian Height, and I blog at suigenerisbrewing.com. And of course, the joke about the forgotten blog is if you listened a couple of weeks back, we had the episode with Garrett and I talking about brewing in Chile, and he was talking about wild yeast captures, and we totally forgot Brian's blog's name. That's what I get for picking such a weird one. Well, okay, so let's start with that. What what does it mean for those who are Latin-impaired? So it's, a, it's an old biology term that refers to a genus that only has one species in it. So Homo sapiens is an example of that us, where the genus Homo only has one species, which is sapiens us. So, and I have no idea why I picked that. It was just kind of what popped in my head that day. Well, and I was going to say, so this plays into your, your background, because so, you have a very technical background. Yeah, I, uh, I was trained as a, a microbiologist, an immunologist, and I'm now actually a, a professor in that field. Uh, although none of my research touches on any brewing organisms, but I still kind of can apply some of that to uh, what I do in my brewery. Ah, uh, so you uh, you are actually a real scientist as opposed to those of us who are fake scientists. Well, I try. <laughs> well, okay. So then, how did uh, how did a science geek like yourself get into good beer? Uh, well, I actually started for all the wrong reasons. So I started brewing uh, right when I started university. Just the you know the cheap canned kits, uh, basically as a cheap way to get beer, and more by accident by design. I made a good beer one day. And that sort of started leading me down the path towards homebrewing. And this was before craft beer was really a thing in my part of Canada. So, you know, a lot of my early explorations into some of the sort of traditional European styles wasn't through the liquor store. It was actually because I could brew them and finally get my hands on them. Uh, and do you remember, like, what the what was the beer that you made that then suddenly make you go, oh, wait, hold on. So uh, I actually kind of got conned by the uh, brew store owner who I think knew what I was up to with all my beer kits. And he sort of got me to use some DME and some grains and some hops and basically just made a, a straight up English pale ale. 
And of course, it turned out really good. So that was uh, sort of the first step down the road to better beer. So in other words, you you went about this sort of backwards. I think most people say, oh, well, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, and my dad used to drink German Pilsner. And when I grew up, it like suddenly the next thing you knew, I, I wanted to try that and that's our, no, you went you went the opposite way. You went, I made bad beer and then figured out how to make good beer. Yeah. All I wanted to do was drink and party, and then by accident, I started making good beer. So worked out in the end. Well, I think it helps the party, except for maybe from a yep. cost standpoint. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so now that, it, now that you are obviously making good beer, what are your favorite things to make? I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite thing. Uh, I always seem to be, be jumping around on styles. I usually have some sort of wild or sour ale going. Uh, that's sort of my my current passion, but you know the classic English styles, a good old American IPA, all those kind of things I like, lagers, uh, you name it. There's not too many beer styles I don't like, so I I generally make what I feel like. So in other words, you do not just explore one one member of a genus. You are no, nope. you, you, <laughs> you have multiple loves. I do, yeah. Well, and I was going to say, I noticed that on your blog, you have a lot of different, a lot of different homebrew recipes that you're talking about, a lot, of, a lot of different adventures across the way. So they seem to be fairly widespread. So now, it, what are some of your favorite things about brewing? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if it's different because you are so scientifically inclined. Uh, so I mean, there's a part of that. You know, I like to experiment with some odd yeasts and things I I pull out of my backyard and stuff like that. It's always interesting to see how that comes out. But I actually find a brew day a pretty relaxing way. Uh, usually I'm doing that on a Saturday or maybe late at night after my little guy's gone to bed and, you know, just, uh, sort of get things set up and I've been doing it a long time. So, you know, it's pretty straightforward and I don't have to think too much and it's just a nice way to spend a day or an afternoon. Indeed. And so now before we get into the meat of the question here, I, I know that you're, you're drinking a beer right now. What are you drinking? So it's sort of a Russian Imperial Stout um, that was actually brewed to fill a barrel that my brew club has. And so this was just a little bit of extra. But the only yeast I had actually was a lager yeast. So it's been fermented with W3470 rather than an English ale or, or something along those lines. Yeah. So in other words, you kind of made a Baltic porter of sorts. Yeah, a real strong one. <laughs> well, that's cool. Those are the best ones. They are. All right. So now let's... Let's talk about like you know why we why we reached out, or actually really why you reached out to us was on the last episode. Denny had discovered uh, via one of our listeners who uh, had noticed that the packages of Fermentus, you know, their thirty forty was it thirty forty seventy, you know, their their dried lager and a couple of the other dried lager strains were marked as Saccharomyces cerevisia right now, and as we all know, that means ale yeast, and so Denny Denny got uh, befuddled. And confused as he as he is wont to do. Yeah, it, it happens to all of us. You should see the look on my face sometimes. And so he put it out there, say, "Hey, what's the story here? And is there some parallel to some of the things that people are seeing with dried lager yeast in terms of fermentation?" And you very kindly reached out to us and uh, gave us the lowdown. And so I was wondering if you'd you'd be able to kind of go into that for the audience, but and talk a little bit about, you know, so what does fermentus mean when they say Saccharomyces cerevisiae on those packets? You know, what's the story with lager yeast? Because it's very confusing now. Yeah, so that's exactly what I think I can do. Uh, so in fermentus defense, it's not really clear what we should call lager yeast. Because uh, it's not sort of a, a classic species. It's actually a hybrid between two different species. Uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so classical ale yeast. And they've actually recently tracked it down. It looks like it was some sort of a hefeweizen yeast. Uh, and then this uh, mysterious yeast that actually took over uh, 20 years for them to figure out what the heck it was. 
Uh, and so it, it ended up being something called Saccharomyces uber- uh Sorry, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Saccharomyces uberianus, I believe is how mm-hmm. you may say it. Um, you said it better than it, I could. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, and... You know, when they found this yeast and sequenced it, they noticed they, this is the closest match we've ever seen to the other part, the mystery part of the logger genome. And uh, after a little bit more testing, around 2014, they sort of put their stamp of approval on it and said, yes, this is the, the missing half to what makes up logger yeast. And uh, so when it comes to hybrids like that, it's there isn't really hard and fast rules on what they should be called. Uh, sometimes they get called after either the part of it you know what it is or the part that's the predominant part. So, you know, calling Saccharomyces cerevisiae is not necessarily wrong. Uh, but in the case of lager yeast, I think it's looking like they've agreed it actually is a, its own species now. It's sort of been wandering down its own road long enough we can call it a species. And so most of the, the scientific literature actually calls it Saccharomyces pastorianus after Louis Pasteur. So... You know, I, I think they're not wrong in calling it a cerevisiae, but they're maybe not right either. <laughs> it, wait, I thought science was supposed to give us hard and fast answers. What's happening? Yeah, not in the fungal world there isn't hard and fast answers. Well, and so Eubianus, uh, that, uh, that other part of the genome, is that the one that people had been talking about, like from Patagonia, from South America? Yeah, uh, so the the first time they found it, it was in Patagonia, and that you know, they actually thought it was a case, and maybe it came uh, came across with some of the the first plants and stuff that were coming over from the New World because lager yeast kind of appeared roughly the same time in history. But they've since found better matches in Tibet, so they actually think it maybe came uh, along the Silk Road rather than coming across from South America. Oh, okay. So, and, and then probably if it came in from South America, maybe over the land bridge, or or are they thinking that was a European? No, no, European. So lager yeast appears five, six hundred years ago. So about the same time when you were starting to see trade with uh, trade or transport, whatever you want to call it, with the New World. All right. So and and so all that stuff about oh hey, you know, lager yeast is from South America is just really the comes about from that was the first time they discovered this piece. Yeah, and, and they've since found it in other places. It seems if you're sort of cold and dry and windy, you might have it kicking around. Before I forget, Pastoranus, the the new name for lager yeast. But that, it's actually the oldest name for lager oh. yeast, but it's the name people seem to have settled on. Okay, well, okay, yeah. So the one that they're that, that they're using it because I also know there's Carl Virginius. Yeah. So scientifically, that one's unofficial um, because basically Hansen came up with that name about three four decades after the first guy who discovered lager yeast uh, named it Pastanorius. So usually when that happens, whoever named it first is the winner. Um, but, uh, well, maybe we can talk about it later, but actually it gets even more complicated than that. <laughs> well, and then, uh, so yeah, before we get too complicated, so we've got Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and of course there are a lot of different Saccharomyces out there. You know, it's just that we deal with cerevisiae for beer and bread making. So that's the one that we know and love. Yep. So we've got cerevisiae hanging out there at some point in time, you know, we get, uh, Eubianus or however you want to say it, uh, comes around and then what we get like uh, sexual reproduction or uh, some sort of gene swap happening there then so yeah that part's a little bit of a mystery they probably ended up in a fermenter somewhere together and when yeast gets stressed strange things can happen so they may have accidentally sort of crossbred it may even have been simpler than that you just had two sort of stressed and damaged cells that kind of got pushed together and merged uh, into a single cell um 
the thing when you look at some strains of lager yeast is they actually have a, a full complement of both the Saccharomyces cerevisiae and the Ubianus um, chromosomes, which sort of suggests it wasn't sexual reproduction because then you only get one copy of each. It kind of suggests you maybe fuse two cells together. Have I ever said that fungus are weird? Yeah, fungus are weird. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> so, uh, so we get uh, then basically we get these cells that we now think of as lager yeast. And, you know, they, they consist of some ratio of Cervasia, uh, genome and some, uh, ratio of the Ubianus uh, ratio or uh, genome. And then what we're, what we were saying earlier is that depending upon that ratio, I mean, c- that ratio can vary from strain to strain. It can. So there's sort of two major families, if you will, of, of logger yeast. So there's what they call type one or the SAS family. And so this is one where it looks like at first you had, you know, a full set of Cerevisiae and a, so, a full set of Ubianus, sorry, I keep mispronouncing that, uh, chromosomes in you the same yeast. Uh, but then it looks like they've lost about half of the, the Cerevisiae genome. So it's more of the Ubianus than the, than the Cerevisiae. Uh, and then there's the type 2 or the, the Frohenberg group. And these ones are the ones that have basically a pretty much complete set of each. Um, so they, they do vary depending on which group you're talking about. Interesting. So do we think that that has some impact on the fermentation characteristics, like in terms of temperature sensitivity? I mean, would that be a possibility? So it doesn't really look like it. Um, it's, it's thought that a lot of the temperature sort of tolerance, the low temperature tolerance is really from that Ubianus species. Mm -hmm. And so since both of them have two copies of that, of that yeast chromosomes, they seem to have sort of inherited, uh, that tolerance to cold equally um but they are different so you know the the type 2 sort of the classic strain in there is w3470 mm-hmm. whereas the type 1 is actually the carlsberg yeast so they are lager yeast with different characteristics different flavor profiles um so it you know there's there's definitely from a, from a, a beer brewing perspective differences between the two mm-hmm. well and then i know that uh, i know, and all of this stuff I think what this starts getting confused around, like how uh, when we started to bring DNA testing in, right? Because I mean, w- w- when we first started classifying lager yeast, I mean, it was just on pure characteristics of the of the yeast performance, right? Things that we exactly. could observe. And so I'm trying to remember the one I always learned was whether or not it could ferment uh, raffinose. Yeah, and that's all lager yeast, right? That's the right. thing that really sets them apart from ale yeasts, right? And so. Ra- uh, raffinose listeners is a one of the longer chain uh, sugars, and so ale yeast can't handle it. It, it, it can't break it down and, and convert it into ethanol and CO two. Lager yeast can. So that I mean that always used to be the test. You know, basically put it, uh, put the yeast strain in the presence of raffinose if it can ferment it. Congratulations, you're a lager. If not, you're an ale. Right? Yeah, and that, and that still works today, except the genetic testing messes everything else up. And I know what there. There's a paper that a lot of people were talking about online. Um, was it uh, Gallone or something like that? Uh, from I think uh, the past couple of years ago, like 2016, where they took yeast strains, a lot some that supplied by Chris White and White Labs, and started doing sequencing and went, yep, Cervasia, Lager, you know, or uh, Pastoranus and uh, Cervasia, what? And it was like, oh wait, those don't line up to what we think they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's sort of a a weird world when you start tracking down where some of these yeast seem to come from. I mean, the one that always surprised me is actually why instead of yeast, 
Sorry, mm-hmm. I think I'm mispronouncing that. But anyways, it's it's actually much closer to uh, English ale strains than it is to Kolsch and Alt strains. And you would you would expect, given where they are in the world, they'd actually be the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. It just shows that yeast are, well, they're dirty hobos. They like to travel everywhere. Yeah, or brewers are thieves, one or the other. Take oh. what works and from whoever has it. Brewing history is rife of uh, espionage and uh, pulling yeast around. I, I still think my favorite one of those is the McEwen strain somehow ending up becoming the Duval strain over time. That, yeah. that, that's the one that's always puzzled me. But when you, when you got what people want, they find ways to get it. You were saying before that all this gets really confusing. Can, uh, can, you, can you dive into what you mean by that? Just because I think people aren't confused enough already. Yeah. So sort of the, the big debate now that we know where the non-serve ECA half of the genome came from is exactly how we ended up with two different major groups of lager yeast. And so the the one sort of group of people are saying, well, they're probably two completely separate um, events. And the, the reason why they're saying that is when you look at the, the Cerevisiae portion of the genomes between the, the SAS versus the Fronberg uh, families is they're way too different to account for the kind of mutations you would expect to see over five, six hundred years. There's about ten times more mutations there than there should be, assuming that they came, you know, assuming that there was a single event that led to the uh, the formation of logger yeast. And so those people are, are trying to argue, okay, well, it happened twice mm-hmm. in two different places. But then there's other groups who are saying, well, that makes no sense because um, – I mean, again, to make things more confusing, I mean, they don't just have full sets of chromosomes from both species, but some of those chromosomes have sort of swapped parts. So you'll have pieces of Cerevisiae next to Berianus all on the same chromosome. And when you look at where those pieces have been swapped, they're the same between the type 1s and the type 2s. And so, I mean, what's the chances if you had two completely different um, interbreeding or whatever you want to call it, events of them then swapping the same pieces of chromosomes at the exact same place. And so there's been a lot of hand-waving sort of trying to explain how you can have more change in the Cerevisiae side than you could account for with just the time that used to have been around versus having this bizarre th- situation where, you, you know, you've rearranged chromosomes in the exact same way. And so the third group is saying, well, what's probably happened is there was the, the, an original fusion event that created, I think they think it was the type uh, 1, so the one that only has a, a, a bit of the, the uh, Cerevisiae genome in it, and then that one fused again with another Cerevisiae, which gave you the type 2s that have a full Cerevisiae genome, and because it bred with a, sep- a second Cerevisiae, that's where all those unexpected mutations come from. So, I mean, it, it, <laughs> does that it, even make sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It's basically it's basically were these mutations or were these events independent or were they in a chain? Exactly, and you know I don't think today anyone's really willing to put a stamp on one and say this is the one that happened. I think it's still sort of a an area of open debate. I mean, just last year alone, I found papers that argued all three positions. <laughs> Well, and so it, it makes me wonder then, given uh, given that I know that yeast are used a lot for uh, genetic studies and and sort of you know how things evolve over time because they they do tend to evolve relatively quickly. I'm actually kind of surprised that we wouldn't have seen more of these types of events. 
Well, in some ways we have. So if you look at all the other species of Saccharomyces, a lot of them are actually species that formed, um, or at least in their in the past, have interbred with other Saccharomyces species. And so, actually, one one of the things that led to it taking so long to find this Uberianus part of the the uh, uh, logger genome is there was um, Berianus and Uvarium species that were pretty close, but not quite right to be the the ancestor of logger and it turns out both of those are actually hybrids themselves so this this sort of interspecies breeding is pretty common among um yeasts and that then makes it really hard to kind of decode what's going on when you when you start investigating them and, and sorry that, i forgot your question so i probably went off track no that's that's good because no, i was asking whether or not this was kind of a common thing uh, so yeah so it is pretty common i guess then the upshot is you know, this sort of thing happens. It's just that the ale lager piece was such a radical shift that they kind of separated out into like very distinctive lines. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, because humans were very interested in, in what they were doing and, and really liked the lager outcome. So I think that kind of probably pushed a lot of that. Yeah. And they, they turned out the to be useful. Changes. Yeah, they t- exactly. They turned out to be useful. Because I'm sure some yeast hybrids come out and they're probably not so useful. I know in the news recently, there were people talking about uh, scientists pushing a new yeast strain that could do lactic acid production. You know, like, hey, let's get you know a clean fermenter that produces acid. Yeah, I'm, I'm that's wondering. Lachantia. And is that the same? Is that probably the same sort of process? Or no, that's something completely different. So that's actually a a completely different genius. Uh, genius. That's a completely different genus of yeast. Okay. I actually know the guy that discovered the genus. Um, I work in the in the same university as he does, and uh, it's just it's a strange genus of yeast. So all of this, there's four or five different species in the genus, and mm-hmm. every single one of them make lactic acid along with alcohol when they ferment. So they basically just, the, the way they're programmed biochemically, they when they ferment, they, they produce alcohol and lactic acid at the same time. So in other words, we're talking, these are just whole new organisms that, that they're starting to classify and, and deal with and not something that was sort of created by, you know, Frankenstein's mathematician. They're, they're completely natural, wild uh, yeast. The, actually, the biggest problem they run into in trying to use them in the brewery is they're really not fond of warm temperatures. So, you know, a lot of them much uh, warmer than 18 Celsius, which I think is about 70 Fahrenheit, uh, they'll just peter out and die. So, it hmm. you know, makes it difficult to ferment with them because sort of by extension, their, their natural pace of fermentation is kind of slow. Right. So not, not the best thing in the brewery, but people are trying to, to make them work. And that's funny because you think about the advice when you use lactobacillus is, you know, get it nice and hot, you know, like, yeah, keep, crank keep, it up. You know, get that thing up around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, it's got to be hot in order to, in order to run. <laughs> yeah, and the, the Lanchancy is the opposite, so it likes it cold. Denny, I think, well, I know he wasn't raised Catholic, but I think he still has a latent bit of Catholicism somewhere in his soul. And this is his uh, self-flagellation question. Was Were we dumb for not knowing this? Is this common no, knowledge? No, not at all. I mean, keep in mind, you know, up until 2014, we didn't even really know what half of the logger yeast genome came from. And, you know, scientists who actually study yeast for a living, so not me, but other scientists, are still figure, trying to figure it out. I think it's perfectly fine if homebrewers are a little confused. I mean, I know when I was reading through all of this stuff, I was having trouble putting all the pieces together myself. There you go. And you have a degree in all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah. 
I, in theory, I should know what I'm, I'm looking at here, and I still have kind of scratching my head. So then, I guess here, me being the the sort of nuevo file, you know, the guy addicted to the new stuff, the magpie in the brewery. Uh, what what sort of possible impacts from this sort of knowledge can you see happening? You know, going out to brewery. So, yeah. So already, you know, now that they they know where the Suberianus is, uh, there are groups who are or essentially in the lab, forcing it to breed with cerevisiae to try and create new lager strains. And, you know, you can imagine, you could start taking some of the cerevisiae strains that, you know, have characteristics very different from lager yeast, like maybe a, a very fruity ester profile or something like that, and then crossing them with with the Uberianus to get, you know, a completely new lager strain with something uh, with a flavor profile very different than what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one one report I found... Um, actually claimed to have found an even cleaner or claimed to have made an even cleaner lager yeast just by breeding you know some strain of Saccharomyces together with a with a Uberiana so for potentially super super clean lagers well and of course uh, I have to guess that the end goal is somebody's going to try and figure out how can we make a hot lager strain well I think that already exists I mean my my experience at least with warm lager fermentations have been pretty successful but I could see them you know maybe in the commercial environment trying to find something that works better for that oh yeah absolutely I mean come on you can't tell me that like like Molson or Anheuser-Busch or, you know, any of these guys wouldn't kill to have a strain that works commercially at, you know, say 70 that would produce a lager-like flavor that they could sell commercially as a lager. And, oh, I, I'm sure they'd love to get their hands on that. They'd probably cut a couple weeks off their production runs. Yeah, exactly. And, and man, time is money. Time is money in the brewing world. Yep. Okay, so that's our that's our logger uh, discussion. I think we, we now fully understand that the world of yeast, and particularly what's a logger yeast, what's not a logger yeast, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just confused. So sit back and enjoy the ride, and hopefully one of these days we'll have the answers. Now, obviously, your blog covers a lot more than this, and you touched on one of the things earlier, and it was the thing that Garrett was touching on in the talk that when we both just basically vapored on, on the blog name. And that's wild yeast capturing at home. Yeah. So, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about some of your experiments and you know what got you doing that? You know, I can't even remember the first time I did uh, a wild beer. It was so long ago, and uh, I was I've always been interested in sort of you know what local sort of bacteria and yeast can kind of give to a beer, and so I've been making wild beers on and off you know, throughout the, the 21 years I've been brewing. And I've always sort of amazed at just, you know, how different they can be, you know, from the same place in the same backyard one month to the next. And I just find it very interesting. And the other thing I'm, I'm kind of motivated by is I have this dream that one day from one of my wild ferments, I'll be able to pull out a, a yeast strain that's actually good on its own. And sort of have my own personal house strain that I, you know, pulled out of the backyard or from wherever. <laughs> the, the, the magic U strain. I like it. So, yeah. now, how do you go about doing uh, your wild use captures, or how have you had the most success? Uh, well, I've done it in a variety of ways, and they all seem to work most of the time, but all seem to fail once in a while. Um, so most of the time, I mean, I tend to be kind of lazy when it comes to brewing. So I quite often just do sort of the cool ship thing. So I, I brew out in the yard on a propane burner. I'll uh, throw a barbecue grill over the top of the pot and put a brick on it to keep the raccoons out. And then I'll just, you know, go inside for the night and in the morning, 
uh, transfer it to a fermenter and see what happens. Um, but I've also done cases where I've um, put jars of wort out or where I've put fruit into jars of wort or flowers to see what's, you know, to gather yeast that way. Um, those are, are probably the most typical ways that I would go about sort of gathering wild yeast, whether it's from the air or from fruit or something like that. Anything special about the wort that you're using for capture, like specific gravity or anything that works best, do you think? Or is it just, yeah, just give some food? If I'm putting stuff out to deliberately try and capture wild yeast or if I'm sampling fruit or something like that, I'll usually pre-acidify the wort to around 4.4, 4.5, uh, just to, to knock back some of the, the potential pathogens that can grow. Uh, other than that, I don't usually do too much special uh, to try and make it maybe a little more selective. I'm usually shooting for between a, a 1.030 and 0 0.040 wart so you know a lower gravity wart mm-hmm. um i usually don't hop because i like sour beer and lactobacilli and most of the ones you capture in the wild tend to be kind of hop tolerant and uh you know the, but the only exception to that is recently i've actually started trying to capture wild yeast from yeast litter and so when i do that i've been adding about five percent ethanol so basically i i take vodka and i add it to the to the um Wart until I got about a 5% alcohol in there. Just because, you know, there's a lot of nasty things also growing in leaf litter and that little bit of alcohol plus pre-acidifying to, you know, 4-4. So, we'll pretty much kill it off the second the leaf hits the wart. Okay, so, yeah, I got confused when you first said that. So, you're literally taking leaves from, I'm guessing, like various fruit trees or various other trees? Well, actually off the ground. Oh, just off the ground. So, you're, yeah. Right off the ground. Yeah, so there were some recent studies. So, in, in the things with yeast being we- weird, people actually have no idea where Saccharomyces cerevisiae lives in the wild. Um, pe- because people use it for so many things, baking and brewing and all these things. Mm-hmm. The, the human stuff is spread everywhere. Right. And so I think it was just last year or maybe the year before, a group actually f- figured out that in the wild, it, it grows on the leaves of things, on um, the fallen leaves of trees like oaks and maples. And so I've been trying to sort of gather from there to see if I can't find some of that stuff locally. You know, sometimes I just wonder when people come up with these experiments and these explorations, if they're just really, really bored. Because I don't know how that would ever occur to anybody. <laughs> I, I don't know either, but, uh, you know, it's funny because over the years, I mean, people thought they grew on fruit, but when you look on, on fruit, it's actually really hard to find them. And then people thought it was bark, but it's also kind of hard to find them on bark. But uh, for some reason in leaf litter, they seem to be just chock full of it. So, Well, as, as long as you get the clean leaves, but I suppose that's why the yeah. ethanol's there. Well, part in part, but you got to watch where the dog's been. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let me ask then the other... The other thing that I've noticed when I've done some wild capture type stuff is I don't know if this is just, you know, me having observational bias on my own, you know, because I know where everything's from, but I've always seemed to have the best success if I'm trying to do a wild use capture. Now, of course, this is going to sound funny with the fruit part, but if I'm in a more agricultural area where there's more stuff growing and, you know, and I think literally the best success I've ever had was leaving jars out in near citrus orchards or apple orchards and getting the yeast out of there. And so I don't know if there's actually any correlation there or if I just got lucky, and particularly if it's coming off of oak trees and the leaves. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had good luck in the city. I've had good luck in the country and I've had bad luck in both places too. 
Um, you know, I think the one thing that happens in the city that might be an advantage is you get a lot more air being stirred up by traffic and things like that. And so you may get, you know, yeast being spread a little farther. But, um, you know, I think the flip side is out in the country, obviously, there's a lot more things growing and, uh, you know, more places where yeast may kind of find a home. So I don't really know. I don't think anyone's really looked at that. Yeah, I'd be scared to actually try and break down the contents of any of the starters I would try to make here near my house because I'm not that far away from a eight-lane highway. So I imagine my my starters would come with a lot of uh, tire dust. Yeah, maybe a little. Who knows? That's all right. (laughs) You're probably breathing that too. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. Now I'm going to sleep well. (laughs) All right, so that's the wild yeast capture. Was there one particular... Uh, beer that you had that you, that you made this way that was magical that you've tried to get back to and maybe not gotten to or have you actually successfully recreated it uh, i don't think i've ever managed to make the same wild beer more than once um i've certainly had some that were really good uh you know usually they they work well if you blend them with something or or fruit them to, to add a little bit more to them mm-hmm. uh i do have a solera um which basically has every sour beer and every wild yeast and every wild ferment that I've ever had that I liked in it. So some of them are still alive and and chugging presumably years after I got them. Uh, But I've never really tried to recreate them. I always want the the new one, not the old one. (laughs) I I think if you're making intentional wild ales from uncontrolled sources, that's what you're going to get. So it's better to have that attitude, I think. Yeah, I think if you're going to try and sort of get the same thing back again, you're probably going to find yourself a little disappointed. Um, you know, I've I've even noticed, you know, putting the pot in the exact same place in the yard just a couple weeks later, you can end up with a completely different beer, even though, you know, the recipe and everything else remains the same. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think if you're looking for consistency, you probably don't want to be looking for wild yeast. Yeah, I think that's the reason why we all switch to monocultures. Yeah, probably. <laughs> consistency is good yep yeah i like to be able to be able to have my lager taste like a lager and not uh something that came off a oak leaf all right so while yeast capture that's that's definitely one of the things that uh, people have talked about and like i said we talked about wild yeast capture with garrett uh, a couple weeks back anything else that you want to tell the audience about you know like you know anything else that you're having fun playing with i know that you had some stuff about pcr uh, up on your on your website <laughs> Getting off to, awfully nerdy there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's pretty in depth topic, but uh, you know, I do have an interest in bringing sort of some of the more advanced stuff I, I do in the lab to some of the brewing things I do. So, you know, when I do find a good strain of yeast or lactobacillus, I usually try and figure out what it is, and I can take advantage of genetic te- techniques for that. And if you're interested in doing that, I've posted some of those methods on my blog. But it's you know not the thing you're going to do in your basement. You do need a, a proper sort of lab for that. Uh, and then kind of the, the thing I'm working on right now is actually trying to see if I can't come with a, up with a relatively inexpensive way to detect this uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae variant diastaticus, which has caused some, some issues in the commercial brewing world, at least uh, recently. Yep. And so this is a, a pretty nasty Saccharomyces, which just sort of, you know, hides in places, but it can eat all the dextrans that the other Saccharomyces leave behind. So, you know, you put a few, bo- few cells of that into a bottle of beer, and three months later, the bottle explodes and the beer you know, tastes like uh, smoke and leather or something like that. So, you know, there's interest, at least commercially, for for a way to detect this that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Yeah, we we talked about diastaticus the the other week, and 
in light of the left hand lawsuit that's going on right now. And yeah, and it, yeah it, that has got to be just an ugly, ugly thing for people to have to worry about if you're running a commercial business. I think our conclusion was, you know, for the most part, as homebrewers, unless you're really trying to hold on to the beer for the longest time, the diastaticus is probably not going to be a huge impactor for us, but it's still, I think that was another one of those things that made everybody go suddenly like, huh, there's different sort of yeast behavior? What? Yeah. And I, I would agree. I think for your average homebrewed beer, you're probably all right. Uh, I sometimes brew sort of long-aged vintage beers, and so now I'm worrying about it, but I've never had a problem with it, so maybe I'm worrying about nothing. Well, I think I think it definitely proves out some things I've noticed in the past, like with some of my my French Saison beers, if I hold on to them for too long. You know, since that French Saison strain is supposed to be, you know, at least some people claim it's a diastaticus variant. Yeah, you know, and I've seen some other claims about some of the other uh, variants that are out there that are commercially available, and everybody's using them without knowing it. I, I mean, that's a again to be a pretty complicated area too. By the looks of it, I mean I'm not as as familiar with it as I'd like to be, but there's been a few reports where there's um, some strains that seem to have the gene for it, but for reasons no one really understands, they don't seem to actually turn the gene on. So even though you know actually in a PCR test like what I'm trying to develop, they'd be considered positive mm-hmm. in terms of practical sense they'd actually be negative so it's you know i think it's going to be a while before we really have a a good feel for exactly how that yeast works and where it is a problem and what strains truly are diastatic and which ones just happen to have the gene but don't actually use it so eventually i think what we'll get down to uh, saccharomyces cerevisiae of our diastaticus active and non-active or something like that right yeah hopefully it'll just be when you you buy your your uh, tube of yeast it'll just be a, a line on the info sheet and it just says plus or minus and that's all you need to know yep but right now it's a bit of a black box, I think. All right. Well, so before we before we take our leave and get on on to the rest of the business of the podcast, anything else that you want to share? Uh, no, I think that's it. Right. Thanks for having me on. All right, and uh, remind people again where they can go read your writings and explore, you know, PCR nerdery and wild yeast nerdery and other beer nerdery. Uh, it's uh, suigenerisbrewing.com, uh, dot com, and I'd spell that out, but for the life of me, I can't remember how. <laughs> Don't worry, we will include it in the show notes so that you don't have to worry yeah. about the spelling. If 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 you try if you try to Google it, it'll probably find find it for you. Yeah, as long as you get somewhere near the spelling and say brewing and blog, Google yeah. Google will, <laughs> Google will get you there. All right. Well, hey, yeah, I should. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time here uh, to talk to us and and help us sort out the whole logger mess. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I hope I achieved that and just didn't confuse people anymore, and thanks for having me on. Oh, well, I think I think the thing is that this is the appropriate level of confusion, because now everybody can go, I don't know, man. And everybody's right. Nobody knows. Sounds fair. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Well, so, how'd I do? Did you enjoy yourself? Did you learn something, Denny? Are, oh, you, are you settled now on the idea of lager yeast versus ale yeast? Uh, well, you know, I am. I have it clearer in my mind that all lager yeast are actually part ale yeast to to a greater or lesser extent. I think that uh, I actually managed to kind of grok about 80% of what Brian was talking about. That was really a truly fascinating interview. What I always liked was that whenever you kind of dig into some of the stuff about science and you start to realize that, you know, we all like to think that science gives you nice, clean answers. No, it just really raises more questions. Yeah, right. Well, and I think that uh, that's a pretty obvious thing. Uh, The more you know, the more you need to know, huh? Indeed. Well, 
I don't know about you, but I think I think it's time to walk away from the East and well, maybe go do some other fun stuff. Yes, let's do that. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. This winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019. Inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at Y-East. Our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. listening to this very special very flimic episode of experimental brewing we hope that you enjoyed uh enjoyed revisiting the past with us we actually really do and love this and man looking back we've talked about a lot of fun stuff so now catch all of us latest adventures and our writings by going to our website experimentalbrew.com you can follow us on twitter at exp brewing on facebook on instagram and whatever other social media we can find uh, Denny is on all the homebrewing forums out there known to mankind. I'm on the Reddit subreddit for homebrewing. If you want to ask us questions, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or questions at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to contact each of us individually, he's Denny at experimentalbrew.com and I'm Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text us at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1AL. Feel free to reach out to us. We love hearing from you, and we love taking your suggestions. And so until next time, remember to brew experimentally or brew wacky, and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing with far fewer coughs.